Happy New Year. Jessica here, podcast producer, resident monogamist. We took a little bit of time off here over the holidays. So this week we are re-sharing one of our favorite episodes from season one, all about platonic polyamory, one of my favorite topics. Um, So take a listen to that here and we'll be back in two weeks with another new episode. Thanks for listening. See you soon. The heart of truly ethical non-monogamy is the acknowledgement that we cannot be all things all the time to the people we love, and yet we remain lovable anyway. That's a quote from Kai Chang Tom, a Canadian social worker and writer. Uh, And this quote really spoke to me this week. I think at first glance, it's about the additive nature of love and self-discovery, that Love is not about winnowing away people until you find the person that you love the most, right? But about adding more and more people in who you love. Uh, And when I first read it and I was first thinking about it, I immediately thought about romantic love. And I thought about sexual partners and I thought about non-monogamy in those terms. But today we're gonna do something a little different, right Alex? That's right. Welcome to Mistakes Were Made, a podcast about non-monogamy for messy people like us. I'm Sarah, a queer therapist, writer, and journalist, and I have a cold, and so that's why I sound like this, Um, a little stuffed up and a little hoarse. And I'm her husband, Alex, a communication professional and educator, and I just always sound like this, uh, a little stuffed up, maybe? And today, we're also joined by our producer and longtime friend, Jessica Partnow. Hi, Jessica. Hi, guys. Thanks for having me today. Thank you for being here, as usual, but on the mic a little bit more today. Um, and we'll find out my why in a minute. Um, but first, let's go right into a story that kind of kicks us off on today's episode. Yeah. So I think I mentioned this last episode that I had gone away on a writing retreat mm-hmm. with a good friend of mine, someone who I would consider him one of my closest friends. And he and I have been creators together and like you're giving me a look Alex because you said him (laughs) this was a man was a man a man a man yeah (laughs) I I went away to the woods to a cabin Mm -hmm. a romantic cabin with a man um and he and I have worked together as kind of creative partners, writing partners for many, many years. And so we decided to take a weekend away and focus specifically on our writing together. So I also knew him before. Yes, you I did. went to I went to fourth grade with him, and we were buds. So <laughs> you've known him longer. That's true. <laughs> um, so get away from my man. <laughs> <laughs> you've known him longer. I've read way more of his drafts than you yeah, have. Yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> um, so anyway, we, we went away for the weekend. It was like two nights and two days away. Uh, and it was a big deal because we were going to get to focus on our writing. And I was excited about it. And I told a lot of people about it. It's not, it's not usual for me to be able to get away and just like do something totally all about writing. Uh, but a couple of people really raised eyebrows about it. Um, and there was definitely the assumption that it was romantic uh, that he and I had a sexual relationship, and if we didn't already, 
that that was going to happen on the weekend or that the specter of it would rise. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. yeah. And it was sort of interesting, like thinking about uh, that. And actually I think f- I was aware of that stuff too. Um, and uh, you know, one of the things that came up for me is just realizing like how, because we're non-monogamous and for people who know that, like we mentioned it to my parents just sort of offhand because, you know, they were going to be helping with childcare or something while you were gone. And I didn't feel weird about it in the same way because my parents know we're non-monogamous. I was kind of like, oh, no bigs. Like they could assume whatever they want, but there wasn't like the specter of cheating there. Um, you know, it was almost like they, they probably did assume that, you know, that he was like your boyfriend or like one of your partners or something like that. It didn't, they didn't ask. And I was just like, not, not sweating it at all. Um, like that perception in the same way that I probably would have been if it wasn't known that we were non-monogamous, right. Then it, it would have been kind of like, Oh, you're like, you're letting your wife go away with a man and you know, um, what's going to happen. Yeah, this is interesting. And I think it really like it kicks off what we're going to be talking about this week, which is specifically intimate and committed or non-traditional relationships that aren't sexual or romantic. And one of the things that was revealed to me as I was telling people about this getaway and I was getting some of those raised eyebrows was, oh, I have a lot of relationships like this that raise people's eyebrows. And I kind of always have Mm -hmm. from long before us opening up. Yeah. So what do you think? Um, I mean, I feel like there was a bit of like a revelation there, right? And as we were talking about this, uh, you going on this trip and like, it seemed pretty, um, I don't want to say it was like ho-hum or whatever. It was like a big deal because of like the time away and stuff like that. It was maybe less a big deal because of like any of that potential like sexual subtext or whatever. But I guess like one of the the pennies that sort of dropped in those conversations was that, um, you know, this is uh, it, like you, you have a really intimate relationship with this person that isn't sexual, but that's exceptional to have a cross gender mm-hmm. relationship, uh, mm-hmm. you know, with somebody that is like sort of intense enough that you would be like working together creatively and want to spend 48 hours kind of together constantly like that's still intense Mm -hmm. that's like a real thing whether or not there's sex involved and i couldn't quite tell and i think that this is going to come up again and again does it make people more uncomfortable that i have intense relationships with people like that outside of my marriage where there might be sex and romance involved or does it make them more uncomfortable that i have intense non-traditional or intimate relationships with people where there isn't sex and romance involved Mm-hmm. And which one of those is actually more threatening? Yeah. yeah. And I think that's kind of what we want to talk about today. Um, in past episodes, we've talked about like compulsory monogamy and the nuclear family and uh, the ways that, um, you know, some of those things might be like really restrictive. Um, but what about when those things are getting challenged uh, with, with types of relationships that aren't explicitly sexual, right? Mm-hmm. Like our entry point, I think my entry point to, to non-monogamy and uh, polyamory has has always been like, oh, you have sex with other people other than your primary partner, other than your wife, or like you have sex with multiple people uh, at the same time, either literally at the same <laughs> time or in the same period of your life. Um, and uh, that's certainly a, like a thing that is very uh, interesting to people and is like kind of transgressive in a way, but as we've discovered, like 
there are other things that are way more transgressive, right? Other kinds of relationships that are actually a lot more transgressive. That involve like trust and money and co-housing, care, parenting, creative endeavors, and love, right? Love that Mm -hmm. is non-romantic or non-sexual. I mean, one of the relationships that came up when I was trying to contextualize for people who are like, what do you mean you're going away to the woods with a man and it's not romantic or sexual and you don't think it will be and you actually know it won't be. And I was like, well, I have other relationships that are like that. I mean, I have one of my best friends is a man and he and I talk on the phone once a week, once every two weeks and we always end that conversation with I love you. You know, like that was just one of many examples I had in my life of relationships that just didn't quite follow a script, Mm -hmm. whether they're across gender or not. All right. So we've established that this makes people uncomfortable. We're going to talk about more examples of making people uncomfortable. And then we're going to talk a little bit about why. Mm -hmm. Right? Try and figure it out, at least. Um, But let's go to an example from Reddit, because you're officially our, like, I, I feel like you're the Reddit person in this podcast and kind of in my life. I'm like, Alex, please ex- go to Reddit and tell me what I need the to Reddit know there. The Reddit troll, but I'm not trolling. <laughs> not uh, trolling. I'm, I'm lurking. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, so I was, um, I, I follow one of the subreddits um, for, it's like poly families or something like that. So it's like a not like crazy active subreddit that just has people talking about um, polyamorous like family situations and kids and stuff like that. Um, and there are a lot of posts on there where people are talking about uh, the decision to cohabitate with their partners. So I think usually this is like a polycule, right? Like a group of people who are kind of like all connected through romantic sexual relationships with each other. Um, and if they're talking about moving in together, they're probably, you know, uh, more than just sexual relationships, right? They're like basically creating a family with, you know, um, a, a number of people who are dating each other in some sort of combination. And a lot of people like go from that, uh, doing that sort of separately as individuals to wanting to live together. And a lot of things come up around like the legal pieces of that and the property pieces of that, which we'll get to in a second, but also just like the idea of like moving in together. Um, there are a lot of posts on there kind of asking for advice about that, which I found really interesting. And it's not about the sex, the sex parts, the sexy parts. It's about, um, you know, things like, uh, a lot of the advice that people get back when they ask for for advice around that is like, know how you're going to deal with household chores. Um, you know, know how you're going to navigate like pet allergy. Like some person's allergic to a cat. The other person has a cat. Like think about ahead of time where you're, where the people are going <laughs> to sleep so they're not like re- reacting to the cat allergies. You know, how are you going to deal with um, just like, getting enough rest because you're, you know, somebody has a cold, they need somewhere to sleep. I don't, I don't know what all the the intricacies of this necessarily are, but like when I was reading those things, it was really kind of surprising me because it sounded kind of like what I think of as sort of like regular, like roommate stuff or cohabitating stuff that is like really actually pretty familiar to us from pre non-monogamy times, right? Like I would say since, um, you know, the three of us and and a number of other people in our sort of chosen family, including Jessica, uh, have been, you know, for like 20 years now, right? Yeah. Something like that, uh, have been living in some sort of different combinations of, of people that were like, I always thought of it as roommates, but it was clearly more than that because we weren't, you know, we used to always make fun of the like people who were roommates and they would like have their shelves in the fridge or have their food labeled. And like very quickly when we started doing this, we were just like, 
what the fuck? That makes no sense. We're not going to have four milks. We're just going to all pool our money for groceries. And yeah, you look like you want to say something, but it's like that, that is this, the, the level of difference. Like there's living together as roommates. And then there's like living together as people who are in relationship with each other. Sharing that. resources, yeah. often sharing financial resources, time, um, labor, and I think it's a distinction to make. We probably didn't think of what we were doing as significantly different than anybody else who was living as roommates or in punk houses or activist houses until we got married. Mm, so this mm-hmm, feels really relevant mm-hmm. to me because once we got married and other people we knew got married, and certainly once we had kids and we're still living in those kinds of uh, like co-housing situations, yeah. that's when people were like, what the fuck are you doing? Uh-huh. Right? Yeah. So there's something about like a life stage thing yeah, happening okay. uh-huh. there too that feels important. There was assumption that you maybe could do that for a while, and but then once you kind of paired off, then you would leave that behind. Yeah. And we didn't really leave it behind. No. But I think even when we were doing it before, <laughs> as younger, as 20-somethings or whatever, where we weren't technically married. I mean, you and I were, were dating monogamously essentially that whole time, and there were mm-hmm. other like couples inside of those those co-living situations, which were like all of those situations were happening nominally because of economics, because it was cheaper. But like practically, I mean, for me, it was like, because I liked it. I've never lived by myself. Like, me either. Ever. And I'd never been like, I want to have my own space or my own stuff. That feels lonely to me, or I imagine it would be, I actually have no idea. I have no idea either. Yeah. Well, and I think there's, there's stuff to unpack there. There's not really a judgment to be made about how much personal space people might need to be comfortable, but I think it is interesting to explore how uncomfortable it made people that we kept getting more and more involved in uh-huh. the lives of the people we were cohabitating with the older we got. And the more like paired off we were, and once we had kids, it was going the opposite direction, right? Uh huh. That than yeah. what people would have expected. Yeah, yeah. And living to, with people, I've often thought about this in terms of like the people who are who I am really close friends with. Almost all of those were people who I lived with at some point, even if I wasn't close friends with them when I started living with them. That's like was the way of of building really close friendships and and intimate relationships. Yeah. So does this feel like a time to just like give people the lowdown on how we live right now? Yeah. Just since we're, we keep referencing it. Uh huh. Yeah. Talk about our, our freaky lifestyle. (laughs) 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 Yeah. So I'm definitely going to bring Jess in on this, but like as a just kind of foundational uh, information about it, we co-own a house together you and I, Alex, and Jessica, and her husband, Curtis, we co-own a house that's like a triplex, basically. Mm-hmm. And so there's two families that live here. One of us, we live upstairs. They live downstairs. Then there's a basement apartment that, in theory, is supposed to be my office and is at least half the time a place where some other person in our family is living. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> um, or, or someone, Yeah living uh-huh. or visiting for a long time. It's often also alluded to as like the sex dungeon, but not very much <laughs> really sex isn't. actually happens oh, in there. No. I think. Um, and then next door we have... Just want to qualify that for anybody who does end up staying there. It's not a sex dungeon. <laughs> so if we invite you to stay in our apartment, it's it's cool. It's cool. <laughs> Unless you're looking for a sex dungeon and then you should look elsewhere. Probably. 
We could talk. <laughs> we could talk. Um, and then next door, our goddaughter and her father, who we've also lived with in some way, shape, or form, sometimes in the same building, sometimes in an adjacent building for like yeah. uh, eight years or something. And then her mom lives a block away, right? Uh-huh. And then we have a couple of other chosen family members who live in the city, but not really close, but we have like regular kind of like standing dates with essentially or times that we hang out. Yeah. Uh, and then there's a much more extended kind of chosen family who do live in other places like that. One of my best friends that I mentioned who I talk to now once a week because we no longer live in the same place. Yeah. Anything else that needs to be added? Jessica, what else would you add to that equation? Um, I mean, I think that covers it. It's kind of funny that the, where the goddaughter and her dad live he used to be my apartment. Cause there was, I did briefly live by myself, I think for like two years um, there were things I liked about it. It was a very cool apartment, but it was like, then I was suddenly, I think a mile away from you guys in this house with a different configuration of chosen family members at that time. And it was just like too far away. Uh-huh. And so then, you know, I was here at a party one time and saw that the apartment next door was up for rent. And I was just like, okay, I'm moving here in, you <laughs> know, right. in two weeks. And that, you know, apartment has been in our chosen family for now. I don't know. Yeah. And I actually want to take a minute to talk shit about the landlord of that apartment because I'm sure he's not listening to this podcast. <laughs> yeah, but talk it's shit. been a thing recently this where we had guy. adjoining yards where there was a, a a gate that had just was just kind of there when we moved in between our two like backyards and we just let the kids go and back and forth and we went back and forth between that gate instead of having to go around on the busy street and like, you know, walk four times as far. And he recently like just like nailed that gate shut and was really like adamant that he did not want it to be open. And it was like, it made me like really mad because it was, it just felt like an affront to our family kind of. And there was no way to explain to this person, you know, that like we're connected we're not, right. it's, this is not just like two separate pieces of property. We are, we are spending like multiple meals together, yeah. right? Like that, that we have a connected life yeah. with these folks and that it seems like this will sometimes happen where you really try and like push back on that with mm-hmm. people. And then they come back with like a pretty strong reaction, like yeah. nailing the gate. He shot. had a super strong reaction. Yeah. yeah. And I don't really know what to, what to make of that exactly, but thank you for indulging my Landlord get fucked corner of the podcast. Yes, good job. Cool. Um, And I also just, it's worth saying that this is significant enough that as like our families grow and like needs change, we're already engaged in a conversation that includes uh, 10 people probably Mm -hmm. about where we might live next. Yeah. And who all, like how we can all contribute to that decision. Yeah. And there was a time when a bunch of us lived together in South Seattle. We lived in South Park and other friends lived nearby in Columbia City. And then we all kind of like when we moved out of that house and we bought this house up here, we all kind of moved regionally in the city together a little bit. And I that's that's a big barrier for me to ever moving anywhere else is we need to like figure out how to to kind of do that all together. But it's really hard to do that to figure that out unless you're buying a giant mansion with 18 rooms and then all moving in together which would be awesome and Uh, we'll do that when this podcast hits huge and like however people get rich off podcasts and buy mansions that's that's my whole scheme here once we set up our patreon then give (laughs) us money for that i guess yeah i don't know so that's like a big long sort of explanation of how we have lived differently yeah yeah and so i guess there's some there's some stuff to talk about 
here uh, in terms of, first of all, like how we were talking about how this this kind of thing is is somewhat transgressive um, and is sort of, you know, people have strong reactions to it. That's like mostly true, I think more for white people and more for straight people. And like there, you know, there's been a lot more like queer chosen family uh, you know, that, that's a legacy that I think is, is, you know, is, is really strong. It's not like we're inventing this, right? Absolutely not. And I think like, this is a thread that has shown up in most of our podcasts at some point that, <laughs> right. <laughs> like how being white, middle-class, um, hetero passing, monogamous <laughs> passing, right? Oh, good. Yeah. Uh, those things make these transgressions, uh, be perceived perhaps differently, or at least like it has to be acknowledged that we're sort of seen as passing up or rejecting privilege around nuclear family and more kind of like normative ways of living. Um, And I think this gets really complicated, but it's definitely important to say that queer communities and BIPOC communities have lived in chosen family and extended family as ways of supporting each other, having connection, sharing resources for generations. Mm -hmm. And so you can't really talk about this sort of stuff about like living non-traditionally or in a different type of community without talking about race and privilege and expectations there. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's also worth saying that there's privilege baked into our ability to do this because we are able to own a house, Mm -hmm. right? So even just being able to own a house in a city, something that was made much more possible by the fact that we could buy it together with another couple, right? But even that makes this more possible than it is for a lot of other people I know. Yeah, so. and we would be subject to a lot more of that landlord bullshit yeah. if we if we didn't own our own house. There are also still like rules that make it kind of hard. That's right. Um, you know, even even with the resources to like do the home ownership part. Um, Jessica, do you want to talk about like a little bit about like when we because you sort of manage the finances of that? Uh, like it wasn't. It's not like simple to Sarah and I owned the house first and then we sold part of it to to Jessica and her husband. Do you want to talk a little bit about like how that was? Yeah, it was interesting because um, I mean, I think the immediate reaction as I started to figure out how to do it like legally was people were just like, this is insane. Nobody does this, Um, you know, or they were just like. Like, one lawyer that I emailed was like, are these people trying to scam you? Like, they thought it was some kind of, like, timeshare Mm -hmm. deal or something. And I was like, what? You know, and I think the thing that finally, like, cracked it open for people was I was like, well, what about, like, when rich people buy a beach house together, right? Two Uh couples own a beach house. It's just like that... uh, show with Lily Tomlin and Jane Fonda, right? <laughs> You're like, like imagine us as extremely rich. Does uh-huh. that change your reaction to this request? Basically, that's exactly <laughs> it. And then people were just like, oh, yeah, totally. We can do that. No problem. Um, yeah. That thing of, like, money is going to come between you or don't get financially entangled with people is such, like, a, a common trope. That happened when we first moved in together, and we all kind of moved, moved to New York together, and... I was like more trust fundy than the rest of us. So I like had some, had some cash and I was like, Oh, we, nobody has gotten jobs yet or whatever. We had no money. And so and we were literally like six to eight people. Yeah. I want to be really clear. There were was we like, that much. Yeah. Well, yeah. Four or five. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. We were, we were mobbing deep. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we just wanted to get an apartment. We needed first month, last month, whatever. Um, you know, which at the time was 
like $3,000, like a laughably small sum of money. But like I had that money available and I was like, I, I had to like, you know, go through my parents somehow to like access it. And they were like, this will ruin your friendships. Like, mm-hmm. don't do this. You will not be friends with people over this anymore. And I was like, really? I don't, I, I kind of believed them at the time or it was like an influential perspective to me. But I was kind of like, no, I'm just going to do it and it'll be fine. And Jessica and Sarah still owe me their <laughs> shit. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah, and it's like no big deal. Like, why would you, why would that seem so much more important? Like, I'm sure that you, you know, it all it all came out in the wash. But even if it didn't, like, who, cares? who gives a shit? Right. Yeah. Like, why do we let that money stuff feel so important? I think this is where we get into, like, what is threatening here and, and ideas of privilege and challenging of capitalism. Um, that if people started joining together in non-traditional relationship, in mutual aid with each other, sharing resources, not siloing off those resources, right? Whether it's childcare, housing, mm-hmm. money, food, right? It becomes a huge challenge to the way capitalism operates, which keeping people siloed away from each other and the idea that it's really taboo to share resources that are seen as intimate outside of a nuclear family, I think benefits capitalism. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, we were structures. talking about this the other day and like I was, I was trying to wrap my brain around that because it's just like people need to buy more appliances. <laughs> like, is it really just like GE is like, we need to perpetuate this uh, you know, nuclear family thing so that everybody has to buy a microwave from us or whatever? Or like, do you think it's more, I mean, it's not like obviously that conspiratorial, right? It's just kind of like things that are, have grown to be embedded in our culture. I think it's about ranking people, right? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I think like capitalism and white supremacy and patriarchy are always engaged in this like practice of ranking people's value in society, uh-huh. right? And this idea that if you have more of that value, whether it comes in the form of resources or white privilege or, you know, class privilege or gender privilege or whatever, that you need to, like, hoard that, right? You have to keep it for yourself and people like you. And that if you were to not do that, it would somehow challenge what you have, right? Mm -hmm. You would then have less, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And this comes up when we talk about the ways that like the way I live or us co-owning property together really upsets my family sometimes, it, it's always this narrative of you're going to have less because you have shared it in this way, right? And I think that's very political. Mm-hmm. And I think that's very much like it's, it's the game. That's, if, you, if you trust other people, if you share what you have with them, they'll take advantage of you. You'll have less you're going to be more right. threatened. Well, and then the flip side of that is like uh, the accumulation of stuff as like with meaning ascribed to it, giving you purpose. And if you're living in sort of isol- relative isolation or kind of like living inside of the system that's been forced upon you of, you know, a, a nuclear family or monogamous relationships or whatever, maybe you're dissatisfied and then maybe... The ways that you, the only way that you have accessible to you to like kind of escape that dissatisfaction is to get more stuff, right? Or like one of the ways. And also, what if we just took care of each other? We know, I mean, this is, I'm getting on my soapbox. So I'm dragging out my soapbox. Mm -hmm. There should be a little sound effect. Uh There's me dragging out my soapbox. I don't even know what a soapbox is. I was 
imagine it as a milk crate. Yeah. So okay. I'm dragging out my milk crate and in standing our, on it. In our polycool communal cult situation, we actually buy soap by the box. Right. So exactly. it's good. <laughs> exactly. Um, but we know there is enough housing for everyone. There are enough resources for everyone. There's enough food for everyone. We have everything we need. There are reason why we can't access that is because it serves racist, sexist, capitalist systems Uh to keep us separated from that truth, right? And for them to be doling it out to us based on what our perceived value is, right? People hate this. People hate this. Yeah. I mean, and I was just also like thinking about how that fear that they create of not having enough or having to hoard it for yourself is also just a way of disguising the actual like more power that we have when we're a bigger collective of people, right? We have the four of us together instead of two separate couples have more financial power, have more political power, have just more resources of every kind, child care, more food, more options for dinner. Exactly. (laughs) We only have to have one Netflix account. (laughs) Because we have the same IP address. That's where we're really hitting them hard. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I think that's really true. I mean, it's about accessing collective power. Yeah. So this is like reminding me of this thing that that was uh, I read about in a couple of different places, but uh, was big on that same polyamory families Reddit. Like people were really angry about this in Kansas City, a suburb of Kansas City. uh, The city council voted unanimously to ban co-living. Um, and basically like the rules of that mean that, uh, a co-living group is a group of at least four unrelated adults living together in a dwelling unit. The ordinance states that if one adult is unrelated to another adult, then the entire group of people will be classified as unrelated. And so you can't have the the law prohibits having more than three people basically just like living together if they're not a family, like a blood family. Um, Oh man, you know what that, my spidey sense is tingling about? That sounds what? racist to me. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, 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 it sounds anti-immigrant. Yeah. Too. Uh-huh. I mean, I immediately thought of just like roommate situations or co-housing situations where people are like coming to a place looking for economic opportunity or for a seasonal job and are right. sharing some sort of housing situation together. Right. Well, in the context, uh, we'll link to the article in the show notes. The, the context of the article is pretty short. It didn't really touch on a lot of that stuff, but it did talk about how uh, the average home price in that county and in the suburbs of Kansas City rose 37% from huh. 2017 to 2021. So in four years, living the cost of living, you know, or housing just like rose by a third. Yep. It's it's crazy in that context. Like, of course, people are going to be joining together and trying to like reduce their expenses. What the relationships look like inside of that, who knows? Right. But I think the reason this was, you know, so such a big thing on that subreddit is like, it's basically, you know, excluding these people's way of life and like delegitimizing their families. I don't think that's actually the purpose. I think the purpose is more, you know, uh, to, to, it's, it's like kind of a pro landlord law, right. To, to keep people from saving money on housing and ideologies aside, we have to talk about how like the economic realities of late stage capitalism mean that people are looking for other solutions to survive, right? Mm -hmm. And so we can talk about having really ideological and personal reasons for doing what we've done and living the way we've lived. It's also benefited us economically and allowed us to have more economic power, as Jessica mentioned. But for a lot of people, 
these sorts of decisions are just about being able to access housing at all, support, childcare in a system that is just like squeezing people further and further on all of those points. Right. Uh, Let's take a little break. Oh, this I'm has so gotten mad. Very, I'm so we need mad. to cool things down. <laughs> I can't. It's got very go critique of capitalism. <laughs> Our sponsorships are going to get pulled if we don't calm this down. So let's recenter ourselves okay. on good monogamy. Okay, so Jessica, coming back from the break, I realized that I wanted to ask you a couple of questions about what it's like for you living in non-traditional community uh, as someone who doesn't identify as non-monogamous. I feel like you have some insight here. Yeah, well, it's so interesting. Like, as you all have been exploring non-monogamy, it has helped me explain my own life to myself in so many ways. I'm like, oh, that's what I've been doing all these years. Like, you know, your joke about, like, not sharing food. I was always, like, so disturbed by the idea that you could live in a house with people and not eat the same food. But which is also, that's just me. It also, you know, it, you have to match your life partners, like, should match on their opinions right. on whether so, or not you share food. Some people may be in deeply committed co-housing situations where the food is totally separate for all kinds of reasons, yeah. right? This is a shorthand that we're using. Exactly. I personally, all of my life partners, we have always believed in sharing food. It's one of my deeply held values. There you go. Um, but I, you know... My whole life, I think, have had, like, a smallish number of, like, really close friendships and people who are my life partners, whether it's, you know, living together, doing creative work together. um, You know, I mean, the three of us running a nonprofit journalism organization together for a dozen years and, Uh you know, before and after that being all kinds of other life partners. um, It's just, like makes sense to me. And I think like, um, before we started recording today, I was like joking that I always get kind of like conf- annoyed. I'll just say annoyed when people say that they married their best friend. Um, <laughs> That's right. Yeah, you do have this bone pick, don't you? <laughs> which is like, again, I feel like I'm being so judgmental. But for me, like, I think it's so distressing because of the idea that like, you're you know, that my husband, Curtis, should be everything, right? Mm-hmm. He should be my romantic partner, and he should be my roommate, and he should be my best friend, and he should be my hiking buddy, and he should be, like, all of these things, when, like, he hates hiking. Um, he really does. Always has, you know, currently not physically able to do it. Maybe we'll get into that whole thing, too. <laughs> but it was a consistent step. But it was not that. Yeah, consistent throughout <laughs> the relationship. He did, you know, he has gone on many hikes with me, but it's not what he would like to do. Um, and I have other close friendships with people who do love to go hiking with me, and it's it's great. Then he can go watch a six-hour-long Turkish art film, mm-hmm. which, you know, I'll do. I keep waiting for Curtis to ask me to do that. Hmm. I'm like, Curtis, who do you know who wants to watch a six-hour-long uh, Turkish art film? Yeah. Me. It's me. I want Curtis, you guys to Curtis, are you listening to this? Curtis, invite me to He that. better be listening. <laughs> I want him to uh, play video games with me while you guys go hiking. Mm. That would be the ideal. There we on go. On my end. Yeah. Yeah. I, well, he would love that. I would love that. Let's yeah. make a plan. <laughs> Let's make a plan. <laughs> yeah, so what well, I'm hearing from you is like, a lot of this feels pretty like a standard thing to say, like, oh, my husband doesn't share all of my interests. What's wrong with that? 
but you have taken it a step further, right? It's not like you just joined a hiking group. You bought a house with another couple. You're a co-parent to our kids. You're like in creative partnerships that span decades. I mean, let's just say it. You and I met in 1985. You came up to me. You were like, want to be best friends. I did not know the blood oath I was signing, but I'm really glad I did. You know, so you have a deep orientation yeah. that is like pretty, I think, radical in this way. That's true. We didn't sign in blood until 1988, I believe, but we did at Good that fact time. Check. And then didn't you also like <laughs> petition the Reagan administration? Yeah, that's for what I'm thinking of. I mean, it was after, yeah. It was. <laughs> and your pleas fell on deaf ears. <laughs> yeah. Right? Still, still waiting for the response. Still waiting for the response. Actually, that was like, that was like you know, non monogamy, like co co-friend it's true uh, erasure yes, right it was. <laughs> requested to be yeah. entanglement with legalistic erasure of non-traditional relationships well and to get back but, to this like thing about it, sex and romance and being the glue for like long intense relationships it has certainly been something that has confused people perplexed and made them uncomfortable over the years yeah well and i would say i mean i was like in various, you know, periods of dating casually or dating medium term or in, you know, a year long relationship. But I would say like in much of my romantic life before I met my husband, it was always a source of tension that I had this family, you know, and there was always sort of like jealousy. Mm -hmm. And I knew like, as I was, when I was out there dating for what turned out to be the last time, we think, <laughs> so far as we know. <laughs> the tension I know, in right? the room is that everybody's like, well, she sounds um, pretty hot. I hope it's on the last one. <laughs> um, you know, but I was like, well, I, obviously, the, it's really important that this person wants to be part of my chosen family, you know, and not that it's like they're willing to put up with it you know, so that they can date me. It's like, mm -mm -mm. this is like an amazing thing that I have spent my entire life cultivating. And it's really, really important to me. And if you don't want to be part of this family, that's okay. So it wasn't we should not date or get married. (laughs) Not something you were developing, just waiting for the right one to come along and replace all of those relationships. Exactly. Mm. Exactly. Yeah. Mm. Which is Mm. like, when you say it like that, the normal way to be sounds so fucking weird. That you would like have a community and then you'd be like, just waiting for that person to come and sweep me off my feet and take me away from all of this community that I've built. Right. Right? And move to the suburbs. Yeah. Move to the suburbs. But that was, that is the pressure. And back to, you know, with my own family, they're, we'll have another episode where we talk about their feelings about my queerness and how much they do or don't engage with that. But the thing they most actively engage with and, and sort of talk about being uncomfortable about is my chosen family, my alternative community. Like, especially after we got married and then especially after we had kids. And it was just like, what are you doing? They cannot, we cannot hang out without them talking about how Uh they do not like it. And then they're not necessarily saying they do not like it, but they're like, what's your exit strategy? Like, do you think the housing market's going to calm down so you can like buy a bungalow? And it's like, no matter how many times I tell them, right? Like, and this is my uh, family of origin or my, um, bio family here, no matter how many times I tell them I have been living this way for 25 years for a reason, there are economic advantages to it, yes, but I am living this way because I want to, and it's not going to change. They they do not hear it. 
they don't hear it. Well, and not to get back on the high horse again, but like everything we just described, like that kind of weird sense that you should be departing, like your your community, I think is like actually rooted in like settler colonialism and like mm. westward expansion and stuff like that. Like I think of that as You're like being sort held of a, back from opportunity because you have loyalties to this like sprawling group of people, mm-hmm. or you need to like leave the Yikes. the nest and go elsewhere because it's like too. There's not enough for you here. Like, go do something new. But Your like, roots are holding yeah. you back instead of nourishing you, which yeah. is, again, gets us back to how these things feel, like, deeply connected to white supremacy and patriarchy. Wow. Okay. Okay, yeah. So, Sarah, why don't you... <laughs> Yikes. <laughs> to reel us back in, could you talk a little bit about how um, some of this stuff is showing up in your practice? Like, we definitely yes. have talked about how non-monogamy mm-hmm. is kind of on trend right now, for and sure. you've been hearing about it a lot from your clients, but, like... Is that showing up in such a way that it's just like people are like, well, I want to have sex outside of my primary partnership? Or what does it look like? All right. So this is actually one of the most interesting developments, I think, in some of the folks that I work with around non-monogamy is that a number of them are entering into non-monogamy or polyamory either explicitly because they're like, I am looking for community and this feels like a place where people seek out intimate connection um, and deep relationships with each other in a culture where it's hard to do that, right? Uh, Or there's folks who are like, I thought I was getting into polyamory and non-monogamy because I wanted to sleep with lots of people and now that I'm here, I'm realizing that it's actually the community that... I'm engaging in the most, and I might have sexual partners every once in a while, and maybe sometimes multiple, but that is kind of secondary to the community piece of it. So I'm not saying that's true for everyone, but I definitely have noticed that that is a trend for some of the folks who I work with, which I think is really fascinating and speaks to a lot of these themes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So people are hungry. You're talking to people who are, who are sort of already inside maybe monogamous relationships and feel isolated or otherwise kind of hungry for community and they're seeing like, you know, starting new relationships with other people with kind of the excuse of sex almost as like a way to build that intimacy that they're looking for with with a broader community of people. Yeah, it's as though sex is the point of entry, if you will. (laughs) Oh, I will. Oh, God. Is there a sound effect for that? Yes. Uh, You're not supposed to say that. We're going to just put the sound effects in after. Over the top. Don't step on it. Uh, for the possibility of having really intimate and important relationships with people who are outside of a nuclear family or outside of a bio family. Um, But it isn't always the glue that holds it together. Um, It can be sometimes, but not always. Uh, So yeah, I think that's, I think that's pretty fascinating. And I'm just realizing that there might be a tie into the pandemic here and the isolation that we experienced, which we've talked about before, which was, because of like safety around the pandemic, your the people you were kind of allowed to be in contact with shrunk dramatically. And it was like just your nuclear family or the people you lived with, right? Or maybe your, your bio family. Um, and I think there might be a way that non-monogamy and polyamory is answering this question of like, can I have a bigger group of people who are that important to me, who helped me get through an emergency, who helped me get through hard times. What might that look like? It's my speculating, but. Mm-hmm. I wonder if the experience of the pandemic had been different for 
people living in more communalist cultures with like not you know multi generational households being the norm and stuff like that, where you're not just isolated with you know one other person or three other people or something like that, but like with a whole a whole big family. So this also speaks to a trend that I've seen in my practice with at least a couple of clients who coming out of the pandemic who have more resources than some of the other people they lived with who have decided to go in together on buying property. Mm -hmm. um, and doing that with the acknowledgement, kind of speaking to what you spoke to earlier, that they have more resources or someone else in the constellation of relationships does. And that doesn't matter. Everyone is going to own this equally because they want to have that kind of like intimate connection. They want to resource share and they are valuing each other and the support they offer each other beyond that kind of like traditional financial ties. And what has come up, at least with a couple of clients, is their families having massive reactions to them doing that. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting because in a lot of these cases, their bio families or families of origin live somewhere else in the country. They were totally cut off during the pandemic. They formed really intense relationships with the people they lived with, and they want to continue those into the future. And now their, um, their bio families are really having strong reactions to it. So you're kind of seeing these themes are showing up from a couple of different directions yeah. right now. Yeah. Well, I don't think this is totally a new thing because uh, back in 2009, there was a groundbreaking film oh, starring God. <laughs> National Treasure, Paul Rudd, uh, that I want to play some clips from. I'm sorry, uh, Alex. Uh, you have this uncanny ability to just like mine the depths of this very specific genre and moment in like cinematic history. It's which all, is it's like because I love this kind of movie. The like like the comedy that is about making some kind of like loose social commentary. Interesting. And the only way I can get you to watch or rewatch them is by tying them into the podcast. <laughs> so true. I forced Sarah to watch I Love You Man from 2009. <laughs> and we have a couple of clips. I have a couple of clips that I would like to play. Uh, so the, the joke of the, or the, the, the setup of the movie is that um, Paul Rudd is like a guy who's like a very successful real estate agent and is sort of like a really like a, a good person who's been sort of a serial monogamist and then he like meets somebody in the opening scene as him proposing to his girlfriend played by Rashida Jones and um, then he sort of realizes that like they're going to get married and he doesn't have any friends and so he doesn't he's like looking for somebody he doesn't have somebody to be his best man and she's got all these female friends and he has like no male friends so he goes out on this quest to try and find uh male friends and hilarity ensues of course and that's kind of the joke is that he's using throughout the movie is that he's using the same strategies that people use in dating to meet a man to be friends with mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. and it is it like, I think a movie holds I mean it's only what 12 years old or whatever but it like holds up pretty well I know sometimes now I just sound like I'm trying to get people to watch the movie but I do feel like they should uh, it doesn't have too many cringeworthy moments that are like that didn't age well or whatever there um, are a couple of like sweet. men are like this and women are like this moments mm -hmm. that you know, felt yeah. 2009 to me. Sure, but it's kind of all to like kind of taking the piss out of that yeah. that paradigm. Um, so yeah, anyway, let's go to the first clip. Uh, this is the two of them in the couple that, uh, who, are, who are engaged, the fiancés uh, getting in conflict about uh, the third, the relationship with the new, the new male friend. You have some money saved up. Can't you just write them a check, you know, to show your good faith? Between the wedding and then, you know, I lent Sydney some money. I mean, it's just I'm gonna be short. Wait, 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 wait. You lent Sydney money? 
for an investment. All his money's tied up in equities. He's gonna pay me back. Peter, that's not the point. We're getting married. You can't just keep stuff like this from me. Can I ask you a question? Why do you think we're getting married? <laughs> what are you talking about? No, Sydney asked me that question. I didn't. I, well, why Zoe? And I, I didn't know how to answer it. Are you kidding? You're, you're kidding, right? Yes. Two weeks before our wedding, and you don't know why you're marrying me? Just forget it. It was a stupid question. I don't know what I was thinking. Just forget. Take it back ten seconds before I asked it. And let's live in that time. Thing is, Peter, I, I get why you would wonder that. I do. But I wish you would have answered the question before you proposed to me. That's the thing. Before, I didn't even think about it. That came out bad, too. I didn't. I'm so, I'm confused. I don't know what I'm saying. Let me just make this a little simpler for you. I'm going to go stay with Denise and Barry, and you and your bud Sydney can hang out and beat up Lou Ferrigno and go to Rush concerts and ride a tandem bicycle down the Venice boardwalk for all I care. We never rode bicycles. Goodbye. Zoe, come on, this is ridiculous. Zoe! Zoe! <laughs> Zoe, come back. So they get in a big fight. Uh, this is not related to the content of this episode, but I love the part. <laughs> I swear I said to you last week, I was like, ah, forget I said that. Let's just go back two minutes and live in that universe <laughs> or whatever. I love it. Um, I'm definitely relating to Paul Rudd a lot uh, in that. But yeah, so the things that came up there, like we've been talking about, you could tell like he like lends money to the friend and that's like this point of tension that she's like new, you know, they've only known each other for eight months or something like right. that in the movie. But like the idea that he would like get financially entangled with somebody who he's, he's friends with is like a big uh, source of tension. And then you can hear them, um, you know, it's just like that really, the relationship is really threatening to the, the one relationship's really threatening to the other one. Yeah. And there's a lot of stuff in this movie about like how many nights are being spent together with the new friend versus the fiance. So I think like that had like non-monogamy polyamory vibes in it too, that I thought were really interesting. Yeah. Now that I'm thinking about it, all of the conflict could actually like, this is actually maybe a non-monogamy movie. If you just forget that they're not the two male characters who are friends are just pretend that they're having sex too. And then suddenly That's, all of the issues that yep. come up, like really, really fit. And they've maybe made a movie about non-monogamy where the, where the conflict is not just, uh, I don't know. Yeah. yeah. It's really interesting. And there's like gendered stuff here too. Um, especially around men having really close male relationships. Uh, and like in this case, Rashida Jones, who's plays Zoe is coming into it with like, all of these like deep lifelong female friendships and that's kind of a given. And then there's like an interesting tension in the film about whether or not it's like natural or okay for men to have deep friendships in the same way. Ones in which you might talk about sex with each other or talk about your insecurities together. Uh, mm -hmm. So there's those yeah. overtones and were there Jason Siegel is sort of exceptional presented as exceptional in that way and that he's just really comfortable in his own skin and is okay with having those kinds of male relationships and Paul Rudd is like really uptight and and like doesn't know how to do that which is very relatable to me I don't know how other men listening to this feel but like um, I think a lot of men especially in our generation like feel like that's really it's really hard because of the the sort of taboos of about being honest or talking about your feelings or, you know, talking about sex or whatever. Um, yeah. So the other clip is where, uh, they, it finally comes to a head and, um, the two men sadly have to break up. 
Yeah. You know, I think you're threatened by what Zoe and I have because you're afraid I won't be able to hang out every night. Hey, you know what? I have a ton of friends, all right? Yeah, who are all moving on with their lives. They're in relationships. They have kids. They're growing up. Hey, let's not forget, you were the one using me. I think we were using each other. Whatever. I, I really don't understand what's going on right now. I think we should spend some time apart. Sad. It was actually sad. It was really sad, yeah. And it was set up like I think the movie intended it for intended for it to be like a joke because then after this they're like return my DVDs, which mm-hmm. my last DVDs, which is definitely a callback to 2009. <laughs> um, and you know I you know, I loaned you clothes and all of this stuff, and it was supposed to be a joke like oh these are friends but they're acting like they're breaking up, but it was genuinely sad because that was clearly a relationship was deeply important to them, had helped them discover parts of themselves. Like Paul Rudd starts playing music again as a result of this friendship. He's able to talk about his shame related to sex and it makes his relationship and his sex life with Rashida Jones better, right? Mm -hmm. Like this was a really important relationship and for it to have ended was a big deal. Yeah, and the point is that he couldn't have both. Right. Right. Uh, it was just really hard for him to have both. And I think the reason why that this sticks out in relation to today's episode is that, you know, they're not, they don't have a sexual relationship. Does it, does it even matter? No. Those dynamics of like just managing really, you know, managing intimacy and closeness with more than one person at once is like for both natural and kind of hard. Yeah. Right. Well, and I think it gets into something that we were going to talk about here. Like, what's the difference between friendship and, I guess, what we're, for the sake of this episode, calling non-sexual or non-romantic non-monogamy? What do you think? Let's just, uh, that's like so many negatives. I know. I know. Non-monogamy. How do we say that in a more positive way? I mean, I guess you could say platonic Uh non-monogamy, and maybe that would have the same Yeah. The linguistic piece of that just speaks to how hard it is, like how, how, like, outsidery this stuff is, right? We have to define these things against themselves. Right. Or whatever. Right. Um, Sorry, what was your question? (laughs) Well, my question was, what is the difference between friendship and a more platonic non-monogamy or non-monogamy or non-traditional relationships that are intense and intimate? Does it matter? Do we need to make that distinction? Why are we talking about this on this podcast? What do you think? I mean, I think for me, I use the fact that there's sex involved to validate relationships. And it's like an expression of intimacy that makes it more comfortable to be more kind of like all in with somebody. Mm -hmm. Right. And like, so people who I am not sleeping with, like, it's like, I don't have that same... The, the not sleeping together is like a feels like a boundary maybe or feels like a like it, it creates like an outward wall to how close we are. Huh. Does that make sense? Yes, and you have a lot of non-traditional intimate friendships and relationships. That's true. A lot of times I like build those around music. I was mm-hmm. joking the other day that uh, we're just fucking each other with guitars rather than <laughs> All right. I've been wondering what you were doing. Yeah, that's pretty much what it is. Okay. Sorry, fellas. <laughs> that's cool. <laughs> I mean, it's a way like of building, like, you know, making music with people is like a, a 
a way of, it's like a, a more intimate experience than like having a conversation in some ways, or maybe it is, maybe it isn't, but like, you know, there are different, there are different things that you can do together with somebody other than sex that, um, are expressions of closeness, I guess. <laughs> what do you think? Well, what did you think I was going to say? I was genuinely curious. <laughs> I was genuinely curious. Uh, because I think I have been maybe more active in creating some of these non-traditional intimate communities and relationships in our life together. Uh, and it's been interesting for that to shift as we become non-monogamous. Uh, and I feel like you're kind of more, I don't know, like actively identifying with that project than maybe ever before. Mm-hmm. Right. It's a more, it's a bigger change for me than it was for you because you already had more uh, really close relationships that were, as we're calling them, non-sexual, non-monogamous relationships. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's and true. it's like freeing me to do that more. Um, huh. Which, I mean, I think it gets to maybe why we're talking about this on this podcast, that non-monogamy, polyamory, words like chosen family that we get from queer communities. Um, this is giving us language and structure to talk about living differently mm -hmm. and living differently that may or may not have to do with sex, but living differently that is challenging. Uh, it's yeah. challenging personally and it's challenging to existing norms and it gets us thinking about why those norms function the way they do. Right. But it's also make it made us realize how we were already doing that. And I think that was a big sort of early revelation for me once we opened our relationship and I started reading more about it. And then I was like, oh, this all, a lot of this sounds really familiar. Like, I'm already doing a lot of this stuff except without the sex. Um, and it's probably harder to do both things at once. It still feels uh, like a reach for me to, you know, be both in deep community with people and having sexual relationships with them, like doing both of those things at the same time with multiple people still feels harder. Hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then it's interesting that for me, I maybe have had, I've maybe had fewer relationships than you. Uh, but like the one that I've had that's lasted the longest got deeply embedded in my community. Right. right? So yes. in creative projects, in parenting, she's now like friends with all my friends and like making a bunch of music with them and there's yeah. going to be a show. Yeah. And it's like, oh yeah, of course. Sorry. I started a band with your girlfriend. <laughs> it's great. My bad. We'll, we'll promote that show on a later podcast. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. So in conclusion. Yeah. Let's come back to that quote from the beginning, and um, I want to read it again, and let's let's uh, talk about like in the context of this conversation, like what what we think about it. The heart of truly ethical non-monogamy is the acknowledgement that we cannot be all things all the time to the people we love, and yet we remain lovable anyway. Hmm. Yeah, that is actually hitting me on a deeper level. I think after we've had this conversation. Um, and I, I was thinking about this as we were talking, you know, we often frame our podcasts uh, with what was the mistake you made, right? Listening to that now, actually I'm feeling like kind of emotional about this. 
I think that a mistake that I have made is not openly standing up for my non-traditional relationships before I was non-monogamous. I think I internalized a lot of the discomfort and shame that people felt on my behalf, right, or projected on me. Uh, and I tried to obscure how important the relationships were to me, or I tried to come up with excuses or reasons why uh, that would seem acceptable to people, reasons why I had the relationships that I did. I was really defensive sometimes. I tried to hide them, right? And like coming back to the example of the writing retreat, I think that really poked at that for me, where I was like kind of nervous about telling people about it mm -hmm. because I knew it was sort of weird. But I was like, no, I can do this now, right? I'm non-monogamous. Mm -hmm. We talk yeah, about yeah. our relationships, yeah. right? Like we stand up for them. We are confident in what they are and what they mean to us, right? And so I think like that is the mistake that I realized that I've made for much of my life. Um, and I think it is wrapped up in also queerness for me um, and some of the struggles I had with being open about that earlier in my life too. Um, yeah. And I think for me, a yeah. mistake that's coming up as you say that is like that I've been like sort of saving my intimacy and vulnerability for monogamous romantic relationships and like putting it there and allowing like people I'm in that kind of relationship with, namely you uh, <laughs> and a handful Hi. of other people and the people I've been dating, you know, since we've been non-monogamous and not really sharing it with the other people, even people who I'm in community with. Hmm. Um, yeah. Oh, that's so interesting, Alex, that that feels like the place where you're allowed to or where it's mm -hmm. more acceptable. Yeah. Yeah. That's fascinating. And I think like that speaks to, you know, sometimes we talk about like, let's talk about what's great about non-monogamy. Mm -hmm. And I'm really getting a hit of that right now, which is it's giving us like emotional, bigger emotional vocabulary, uh -huh. right? It's giving us more ways to talk about love and relationships. It's helping us understand what those mean to us. And I think for me, it's helping me stand up for that. Um, yeah. And feel really like confident and grounded. Yeah. And we don't have to be, you know, our, our chosen family, more connected community driven sort of lifestyle. We don't have to apologize for it or, you know, like feel like it's, it's weird. We have more language to say like, Oh, we're just non-monogamous. And that shows up in, in all of these ways, like many of them not sexual, but still like the values are, are there and we're like living values. We're not just, it's not just an accident. This is what, how we want to be. This is how we are. Yeah. Um, and this is clearly like an orientation or a way that I've been for my whole life. Yeah. Right. Hey. But still, do not eat my food in the fridge. It's got post-it notes on it. <laughs> <laughs> that baba ganoush is mine. All right. I'm not going to touch your baba ganoush. <laughs> I do know that you actually have pretty strong feelings about that. No, you're <laughs> <laughs> Just so long as you always lay, leave the last soda water for me. Yes, that's that's my one requirement. I do. You know what? I always do. I always do. <laughs> um, okay. Well, thank you for listening. Uh, this has been Mistakes Were Made. Uh, you can find us at Mistakes Cast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and on Instagram, uh, of course. Um, and you can email us at MistakesCast, M-I-S-T-A-K-E-S-C-A-S-T, at gmail.com. 
Um, we'd love to hear from you about what you think about the show, questions you might have, um, other things you think we should talk about, things you think we should talk about differently, perspectives you like to hear represented, uh, things you think are great about us, your favorite brand of store-bought baba ganoush, <laughs> all of those tips. Um, and also, actually, any movies in particular that are kind of in this vein of non-traditional relationships. And not that I don't love the genre that you're bringing to the podcast, but, you know, maybe there's some other places you want to more. look. Okay, fair enough. All right, we'll be back in a couple weeks with more. All right. Bye, Bye everyone. Thank you. 